so before we get uh, before we get going here too much, little shout out to Haley and her family listening in Woo! Seattle. So <laughs> okay, that wasn't me clearly saying that last one. But yeah, if you want to get a shout out on these, you know, just send me an email apparently, and you'll get you'll you'll be in history. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so uh, we're going through church history. We're, we're, we just finished up the Napoleonic era because we just got rid of Napoleon. Technically, there'd be a lot of people who would say we're still in the Napoleonic era, but I always feel uncomfortable doing that once Napoleon's out of the picture. So, we're just going to move into something I'm going to call "You're doing it wrong," because one of the one of the big issues with having a big revival and a big movement of God is that once you have God moving and you have a lot of people coming to know the Lord, you've got a lot of people being very religious. The first thing we tend to do as human beings is to decide why everybody else is doing it wrong, right? I feel like we're still in this age. Uh, it's just human history. I'm pretty sure we're always in the age of, I think everybody else but me is doing it wrong. That's Okay, that's what, that's what Megan said, yeah. But we're in this in spades right now. Over the next 20 years, most of the cults that we know of as cults in the United States get launched in the next 20 years. Um, and so just a whole bunch of different things. Actually, and a lot of them coming from the exact same spot in New York. Go figure. Yeah. It's called the Burned Out District. Uh, Charles Finney, uh, who was a big evangelist, and uh, he, he talked about a section in western New York that had been hit by so much evangelism that it, it was pointless to evangelize. It's like everybody's either Christian or totally jaded to the idea of Christianity. It's burned out. There's no more kindling for us to burn as fuel for for the evangelistic efforts. You might as well just abandon Western New York and move somewhere else because it's been hit. Everybody's heard the gospel a gazillion times. If you are wanting to make a cult, the best place that you should ever look to build a cult is a place where you've got a lot of Christians. That's the Mormon Church specifically specifically focuses on places that have been hit by evangelical missionaries. Because they're like, that's where people have an idea of Christianity, but either don't really understand it yet, or want a novel version of that. They want a shinier version than everybody else has. So if you're going to have a Christian cult. Would it also mean that Satan realizes he needs to stop this? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a definite... There's a, where there's light, there's, there's much darkness. I mean, and, and, and every place in, in history where we've seen uh, the Holy Spirit really moving, we've seen Satan trying to attack that. But from a purely human standpoint, it also makes sense where cults that are trying to, to stem off of Christianity would start in places that see themselves as Christian. Anyway. Um, okay, so we've got Age of Revival actually leading to conflict and things. 1817, guy named Klaus Harms posts his 95 Theses. Where have you heard of 95 Theses before? Martin Luther. Martin Luther in 1517, right? Harms is born in Kiel and became this, this real big proponent of Enlightenment rationalism. This idea of everything should be based on what makes sense and nothing based on anything that doesn't already make sense to you. Reason is the core of it. But then he went to school at the University of Kiel and he came into the teachings of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Where have we heard of Schleiermacher before? Anybody remember when we were chatting about this? Schleiermacher was a guy who had grown up with the Moravians, who were strong Christians, Bible believers, said you really need to live this kind of stuff out, and pietists, strong believers, Bible believing Christians, really need to live this stuff out. And what he had gleaned from both those sets is, the core thing is living this stuff out. The core thing is living out the teachings of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. Not so much like the Bible, but just, you know, Jesus' heart. So, you know, go to Paraguay and build bridges for the natives. You don't have to tell them anything about Jesus, because the gospel really is a social gospel. It's just, you know, making everybody feel loved and things. Thus, you shouldn't worry too much about what the Bible says as if it were an authoritative document that, um, that should be believed on a, on a cosmological level. It's not an accurate historical record. You should live it out as an artifact of its times. All it's doing is reflecting what people felt like they believed back then. It means whatever you feel like it means to you. So everything you ever heard me say in Bible study you're not supposed to do, that's Schleiermacher. 
So you know, when, you, when, you, when you hear me saying things like, never start by saying, well, what I feel like this, this passage means. He's like, no, that's, that's all that it means, is what you feel like it means, because that's all that really matters. Okay? He's developed a school of higher criticism that presumed what the original intents were based on assumptions as to who wrote it and why they probably wrote it. So he came up with a, 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 a supposed priestly source, a Yahwist source, all this kind of stuff, because you just got to figure out what it probably meant to them and then read into it. He thus created what we now refer to as liberal Christianity. Not politically liberal, theologically liberal. Because it's progressive and it does whatever you feel like doing. Interestingly, Schleiermacher is the one who helped Harms get more conservative. <laughs> Which I always find interesting. Because how do we keep, we keep finding this? It's like, well, who was the one that actually helped ultimately bring about uh, God's uh, release of the people from bondage from, from Egypt? You go, well, technically, Pharaoh actually helped this by being such a twerp about things. He actually brought about the will of God. Hitler brought about the creation of the Jewish state. Um, the East India Company actually helped you know, missionaries. It's just it's funny how God works. He's got a good sense of humor. Schleiermacher helped Harms get conservative. Because he said, now wait a minute. Schleiermacher, you're being too rationalistic. There is a faith component, you know. Really, really. I mean, there's this is important. You need to you need to believe. You need to have a relationship with with Christ. It's not enough just to believe or just to think right thoughts. You need to have a good heart. And so he actually pulled Harms back into thinking about Christianity from a relationship with God kind of kind of mindset. So so Harms took that and ran with it and said, okay, so we really need to live out Christ's heart. And so we went back to Scripture to figure out how to do that and realized. Hey, we need to get back to scripture. And so he began focusing on being much more biblically based in his Christianity. Wacky fun. Love history. Anyway, soon he's preaching in conservative Lutheran churches. He's pointing people back to scripture. He's building all this kind of stuff. And he's attacking what was called the Prussian Union of Churches. King Prussia uh, had, had taken the Lutheran Church and the Reformed Church and smushed them together and said, work together. Let's just get the best of both worlds. And Harms said, actually, you've got the worst of both worlds. You're not enough of either of these. You, 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 you took a lot of the trappings of Lutheranism and smatterings of the theology of, of Calvinism stuck together in something that really wasn't either, just to make everybody happy. It has ceased to be a truly Reformed church or a truly Lutheran church. You boneheads. What are you doing? You're just, you're just trying to make everybody happy and work together politically. 1817, he had such a strong following that he took that 300th anniversary of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses, and he wrote his own 95 Theses, and he published them together side by side with, with things, because he's like, hey, we need a new 95 Theses, but he did it differently, he's hitting different things. In Harm's 95 Theses, he wrote, we could call reason, our times, Pope, our Antichrist. Too many people are like, whatever makes sense to me, that is my God. That is what is leading me on. Just like in Martin Luther's time, he's writing against Catholicism. I'm writing against the cult of reason. Writing against all this enlightenment rationality. Because nobody, nobody hates something more than the guy who just got converted from it. You will never find more avid anti-smokers than people who used to be smokers and aren't now. You ever run into that? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Harms. It's like, you try to talk to him about enlightenment stuff, he's just like, no, I was seduced by that, but not anymore. Reason rages in the Lutheran church, he wrote. It tears Christ from the altar, throws God's word from the pulpit, casts excrements into the baptismal water, mixes all sorts of people when it comes to God, parents, Erases the address of the confessional chair, hisses out the priests and all the people with him, and has been doing this for a long time. He actually even writes a little bit like Luther. You know, it's, uh, it's like, really? You're kind of almost crass there. Yeah, I can see that. So, given what you think he's saying here, what do you think would constitute a healthy church? If, if reason is horrible, what's a healthy church? 
Biblical church. Biblical church, okay. Okay. He said the evangelical Catholic church is a glorious church. It rests on and builds itself preferably by the sacrament, by special mystical holy action. The evangelical reformed church is a glorious church. It rests on and builds itself up by God's word. More glorious than both is the evangelical Lutheran Church. It rests on and builds itself up by the sacrament as well as God's word. So, God's word plus mystical uh, magic action, that's, that's a healthy church. The healthy church abandons any kind of man-made doctrines, intellectual study, any of that. It simply uses the Bible. That's a healthy church. Ignore all the doctrine stuff. Bible. Do you agree? Most of mine are. Okay. Why do you say that's a loaded question? Because we should use the Bible, but there's always going to be intellectual study and interpretation. You can't just go Bible. Like you have to, like you're going to live that. No, 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 no. We're going to get rid of all the man-made doctrines. Yeah, Cliff, Cliff was right. You just go back to the Bible. Can't we just go back to the Bible? So we'll get rid of Cliff's writings. Well, if, 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 if people start making doctrines out of them. Aren't sacraments going to No. God made the sacraments. God specifically set up the, the, the communion service the way we do it. You, know, you didn't realize nobody ever did it that way in the Bible or in the... No, God said that. So how are you supposed to make use of the Bible without any intellect? Just let it wash over you. Read the Bible. The Bible's very clear. The Bible is very clear. You cannot read the Bible and have differences of opinion. Well, it's very why clear. Why do we have different de denominations? Because people forget that they just need to get back to the Bible. Isn't this the basic argument of the churches of Christ? Let's just get back to the Bible. No doctrine, no creeds, just the Bible. You know, your interpretation of it. No, 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 just the Bible. You still have articles of faith. You're just not articulating them as such. No, no, no. No, we're just reading the Bible. So clearly, the Bible says you have to baptize adults by immersion. Not, not children. Not infants. Not by sprinkling. There's no discussion about this. This is just what the Bible says. Clearly, the Bible says no instruments. Because they never use instruments to, to worship in the New Testament. And Christ changed everything from the Old Testament. So anything not expressed. That's the Church of Christ, right? But that's not a man-made doctrine. That's just the Bible. Now again, I'm not saying that anybody's right or wrong here in their conclusions, but I think this is an extremely dangerous hermeneutic because as Cliff was saying, this is why we have so many denominations. Is everybody looks at the Bible and sees different bits. The Bible's written in layers and layers and layers and layers of things. It's supposed to hit you in different waves at different times as you as you start to as you start to leave and, and go off the boundary to the right side, you hit this thing and it bounces you back in, and you start to wander off the boundary on the left side and you hit another thing and it bounces you back in. Uh, does it also kind of prevent uh, a relationship with Christ? I mean, if you're so working on doctrine or so working on the, uh, uh, you know, what, what things say that you leave out a relationship? Now, Yes, I would agree. Now, arguably, technically, you could do that either way. You could do that if all you ever do is focus on jumping through the ritualistic hoops that men have come up with. And you could do that if all you're ever doing is um, is trying to avoid that, because all you're doing is trying to say, I never want to have any kind of human involvement in this. Both of those ways, you can spend your time just kind of lost in the details instead of a relationship. What's interesting is... Oh, go ahead. Just one comment. Um, a friend of mine who's a minister had mentioned that even back in Jesus' time, they were interpreting Scripture incorrectly because that's why they missed the Messiah. You can make that argument, sure. I mean, isn't that what Jesus essentially said to the Pharisees? He's like, you're trying so hard to jump through all the right hoops that you've missed the point of jumping through the hoops in the first place. Yeah. Um, part of what Harmus did was to try to help the church appreciate and return to its traditional hymns. It's like, we got to get back to the to the way we used to do it. Because a lot of the hymns have been tweaked and changed. Especially, uh, like the lyrics have been modernized, or uh, doctrines have been updated. Do you remember a, a hymn that we talked about not too awful long ago? 
that its own writer updated it? Remember Rockin' Ages? And, uh, and Top Lady said, wait a minute, I used to be more Methodist, and now I'm more Calvinist. And so he changed his own lyrics, because he, he didn't like the Methodist stuff that he had been, had been buying into, and so he changed it from talking about a double cure, where God has to hit you twice, he has to save you from his wrath, and then he also needs to secondarily work to make you sanctified. He's like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. That, that actually just happens all at once. I think Calvin was right. And so, I'm going to have to change my own lyrics. Anyway, but the music had also been changed over the years. Um, it had been tweaked because it moved away. I mean, uh, Luther was a big fan of plain song, and, and uh, there's other Renaissance-style tunes, and, and so they, it made them more and more contemporary as time had gone on. Tellingly, Harms found that though people would let him tweak the lyrics to get back to the way they used to be, they wouldn't let him change the music because they were being too traditional, which I find amazingly ironic. I, I think this is hysterically funny because they perceived the original tunes as weird, archaic and things. The new tunes are traditional because they're the ones that they grew up with. Right? This is the way it sounded for a generation or two. Yeah, so what does that suggest? That's terrifying. Yeah, it suggests that even though they expressed it as if I'm being traditional and we don't want this newfangled stuff and if you're really mature in Christ you'll sing it this way instead of keep changing things and, 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 and these words are important you go but they aren't as important to you as the music. The words are not as important to you as the tune. So is it really that you're a traditionalist? Is it really that you are trying to uphold Lutheran tradition or what have you? Or is it that it's all about what it feels like to you in a worship service? So they weren't really dedicated to the traditional as much as they were to the familiar. And then they called that traditional. As in the case of a lot of traditionalists, not everyone, but a lot of traditionalists, the issue isn't really being pro-tradition as it is being anti-change of what they are familiar with. There are times where we sit there and go, um, no, you're changing words in a way that matters. No, I'm very uncomfortable with this. I am personally uncomfortable when people sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island because I think it undermines what they're trying to do in the, in the, original, in the original song. That is me being whether you want to call it a traditionalist or saying, wait, this stuff matters. Please do not change this into something else. But we're talking about people who go, it just doesn't feel the way. My grandma sang it this way. You're changing what my grandma did. That's not traditionalism. That's anti-change. Okay, 1817, same year that Robert Moffat arrived in South Africa. He's born in Scotland, has a passion for missions, at age 20, he applied to the London Missionary Society, and he said, I want to be a missionary. And so they saw a need for him in South Africa, in part because it was under missionary. But also, remember, we ended last week by talking about Shaka has just invaded South Africa with the Zulu. He'd reorganized the Zulus. It's becoming the Zulu Empire, and they're conquering everything. And they're like, you know, they could really use a little bit of Jesus down there in South Africa. We're going to send you. So he left immediately. And a couple years later, brought his brand new wife. It's like, you got married? And then immediately left for three years? Yeah. That there's dedication. That's, that takes a, that, one wonders how Mary felt about that, but um, had all sorts of problems. Uh, there's all sorts of stories about uh, the difficulty. He almost starved to death. He nearly died of thirst. There's all sorts of different things that went on. But he remained committed to the ministry for 67 years. He was minister to South Africa for, for 67 years. And he in that time, he uh, established the native church. He reached thousands with the gospel message, translated the Bible into Setswana, which is uh, the language, uh, well, as I say, it's, it's, it's spoken with, like South Africa by like, 5 million people. So translate the Bible into Setswana, the first time that the Bible had ever been printed in its entirety anywhere in Africa which is kind of huge, and it's the first time it, was, it had ever been printed in a previously unwritten African language. So you actually had to come up with how do you even write Setswana so that these people could have the Bible. Yeah, I love this guy. Yeah, Robert Moffat just rocked. 
He was awarded a Doctorate of Divinity from Edinburgh. He got to see his son take over his ministry in South Africa, so he knew it would be perpetuated. And he saw his daughter married, uh, his young protege, a guy that he met one of the times he went back on furlough to Scotland. Anybody recognize this guy? Maybe not. Hopefully you'll recognize his name. No? It's Dr. David Livingston. Wow. Was a protege of, of Moffat. Moffat went back to Scotland and was teaching, and, and Livingston said, that, that's what I want to do. What you're doing, that's what I want to do. And so Moffat brought him back to, to Africa where he married Moffat's daughter. And went, Okay, everybody, David Livingston is the guy that, uh, Stanley Livingston, I presume, and I, I came out with it, which made generations of kids think that his first name is Stanley. Right? That there was even a character on uh, a Tennessee Tuxedo named Stanley Livingston. And they would, they would say, oh, Stanley Livingston, I presume. You know, there's a little joke. But yes, we will talk about this later on. But what, if anything that you know, other than that Livingston is a missionary, do you know anything else about Livingston? Yes, although it was he wasn't lost. Uh, you know, he just went off into the bush and didn't contact. He wanted to be. They just didn't know where it was. Yeah, he was exactly where he wanted to be, and then they came. So when they're like, "Oh, I found you," he's like, "What found? I did not hear." But it says something about Stanley, uh, who's a reporter that they sent, and, and in the process discovered Victoria Falls and all this kind of stuff. But um, they sent Stanley. And it, it says something about his sense of humor when, after weeks of trekking into the bush and looking, he found the lone white guy in the middle of the, of the jungle where they presumed Livingston was. And he walks up and he goes, Stanley Livingston, I presume? This is like, the only white guy on the continent! I'm assuming you're Livingston! Yep. So, I have a great deal of, of affection here for Stanley and a sense of humor. Anyway, we'll talk more about Livingston after he kicks in. 1818, the first Seminole War kicks in down in Florida. Because if nothing else from you know sports teams, you should know the Seminoles down in Florida. I say kicked in because it's technically been going on for a while. You can make an argument that it's been going on since that Creek chief at the end of the Creek War went down and joined the Seminoles and tried to stir them up. Um, some people say the Seminole War started in 1814. Some people say, no, it technically started like 1812 when all the other Indian Wars were kicking in. But officially, according to like the United States Army, 1818. Um, he'd been extremely successful fighting the Creek. So Monroe said, I want Andrew Jackson back. This guy is an Indian fighter. He knows how to win. Because, well, he knows how to win. He's right. I mean, he was he, he won battle after battle in the War of 1812. He won battle after battle in the Creek War. Ended it relatively quickly. So he's like, I'm going to send you down there to fight the Seminole. You guys, you know what you're doing. So he went down with his Texas Volunteers, which included a young Davy Crockett. So increasingly, as we go through history, you should be recognizing names. You should be going, oh, oh that's where he comes in. Oh, that guy. Hopefully. Anyway. But he wasn't just supposed to fight the Seminoles. He's also supposed to fight a group of fugitive slaves. At the end of the War of 1812, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols, uh, it being the last group of British to leave North America, left um, a group of Seminole mercenaries and fugitive slaves that he had been training as insurgents. He's like, I'm going to leave you guys at a, at a fort. I'm going to give you guys a fort, and I'm going to say, if at all possible, do mischief. Yeah. Because we can't. I mean, we're British, and we just surrendered. We're done. You know, we're leaving. So, so I'm leaving you guys to be gorillas and be obnoxious. The guerrillas attacked and killed a group of American sailors in 1816, and everybody freaked out because they're like, we've been over for over a year, and suddenly we have more attacks on American ships and things like that. I wasn't expecting that. Everybody in America was kind of like, wait, there's still an armed force in America and in forts and things fighting for the British? What's up with that? Would you think there's a particular group of people in America that would have been particularly freaked out by this? South, it was close. Anybody in the South? Anyone near that? So there goes, there's a bunch of armed and trained former slaves who are attacking white people. They were extremely uncomfortable with this idea. All of a sudden, all the, all the Southern states said, President, you've got to do something about this. I mean, 
we're a hop, skip, and a jump away from an armed insurrection of existing slaves. Do something about this. We're, we're terrified. So he sent Jackson down, and he said, deal with this however you need to deal with this. Any means necessary, quell this quickly before it erupts, not only into more killing, not only uh, because the Seminoles are getting riled up, but because we have a huge population of slaves that could rise up. Deal with this. Tricky part is that the fort is actually in Florida. Yeah, that's that's Spanish territory. That is not American territory, which is why the fort is there. Because the British are like, well, we're not going to put it in American territory. That'd be screwy. We're going to put it just over the border in in Florida. Attack from Florida. So what do you do? You're Jackson. Yeah, you invade. You invade Florida. Actually, starts off by asking the Florida governor. The, the Spanish governor, he's like, destroy the fort. You guys got to deal with this. This is in Spanish territory that's attacking American stuff. Deal with it. And the governor says, oh, I can't. I don't have the forces. Which may be true. It's possible. Or it may be that they were just fine with people attacking American, for, uh, uh, American settlers and American sailors. So, without orders, Jackson invades Florida. Because that's, I don't know if you've heard Andrew Jackson. Dude. Standard Jackson. <laughs> so he's like, that's it. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to do this myself. As he leaves to do it, you know, on his trip down to the fort, he sends a letter to Monroe informing him, by the way, I'm invading Florida. Um, I hope that letter gets to Monroe after it was Yep, yep. Plausible deniability. That's, that's why he did it that way. And he might sit there and go, well, he's being a twerp. A little bit. But you so but, glad there wasn't Exactly. But, that's, but that is exactly why Jackson did it that way. He's like, I, I don't want to pull a, a Pearl Harbor and say, I never told anybody. And yet, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. So, I'm going to inform the president, but the president can honestly say, I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, though technically the attack itself was led by a guy named Edmund Gaines, who we're going to hear later on in the Mexican-American War. So, Again, names are going to keep popping up. In retaliation, the Seminoles, because he's attacking and killing a bunch of Seminoles at the fort, the Seminoles attack Jackson's troops as they're marching back to U.S. territory, as, as you might imagine. The troops fought back and killed a bunch of Seminoles. While the Seminoles were attacking, white American settlers attacked their villages and said, well, there's no braves here. So we can kill all the women and children in the village and take their stuff. Which made the Seminoles respond with violence. Which made Jackson respond with violence. Because this is war. It never gets pretty. It always gets ugly. So he suppressed the, the, the Seminoles by saying, that's it. I'm going to burn down whole villages. I'm going to destroy the crops in the fields. Do not fight us. We are trying to leave. Let us just go. But as long as you do this, I'm going to consider this an act of war, and we'll take it out. Now, again, credit where credit's due. Jackson tried very hard. He's like, don't kill anybody in, in the villages, if at all possible. Don't kill anybody in the fields, but burn down their stuff. Because this is what Harrison had figured out in the Northwest worked, right? It's like, you want to stop an, in, an Indian problem, you, you say, everybody out of the village, I'm burning this, go find another village, go. Well, we're not, we're not stupid enough to fight and kill you, if at all possible, but we are going to say there's a cost to trying to fight us. So stop it. Harrison figured that out. Jackson's like, okay, well, let's do that. But the settlers had already killed a lot of them. Yeah, it wasn't Jackson. But, it, but the Seminoles were like, the Americans are killing us all. Fight the American troops. He's like, no. No. Actually, if you had allowed Jackson, he's not the greatest human being in the world, but if you'd allowed him just to do the police action he'd originally intended to do, this wouldn't have erupted into a war. Unfortunately, while he was attacking the villages and burning stuff, they uncovered documents, official documents, from Britain and Spain, giving the natives weapons, promising them things if they would attack America. So all of a sudden this went from, guys, stop it to, what? <laughs> no, you did it. No, you did You really? This is bad stuff. So he wrote to Monroe saying, you realize the only way to stop this is to technically conquer Florida itself, because 
apparently Spain is funding all of this. That's why the governor said he wasn't going to help us, because this is what he intended all along. I'm looking at letters from the governor saying that. So without orders, again, Jackson took over Pensacola and deposed the governor. Because technically he's right. But you shouldn't do it. <laughs> it's a little bit of that Cromwell thing where you go, oh, I see your point. No, that's not the way to do this. Or South would just love him because he's taking care of the problem. Yes! And they already loved him and he keeps winning. You notice every time we talk about Jackson, it's, and then he won. Well, then you can do it whatever you want as long as you win. Sort of. Even Monroe said, okay, Andy, come home. You don't get to do that. <laughs> You're, all you can do is talk everybody off. Spain says, we demand the immediate punishment of Jackson. We threaten war. Well, they have a couple of times. Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, son of President John Adams. John Quincy Adams, who just looks like a cheery fellow, <laughs> called their bluff. He's like, really? You're going to declare war? And Monroe's like, golly, what do we do with this? And Quincy Adams like, they're not going to do war. They're not going to fight us. We can back down, or we can make use of this. Spain's still recovering from years of war against Napoleon. Napoleon put his own brother on the throne of Spain, destroy their military, which means that Spain has been scrambling to deal with all the revolutions going on in Central and South America. Most of the Spanish colonial governments in Central and South America are now independent. They have now thrown off Spain, and Spain is scrambling. And John Quincy Adams is like, they can't afford a war. Trust me. It takes time to get them. He's like, they're just rattling their sabers. Now, we can back down, or we can rattle ours louder. I vote we rattle ours louder. So he said, now I'll tell you what, I'm going to write a, a letter to Spain and say, no, Spain has to immediately do, not us, we're not immediately punishing him, you've got to do something. Spain must immediately make her election, her decision, either to place a force in Florida adequate at once to the protection of her territory and to the fulfillment of her engagements. You take care of Florida, because apparently you don't have enough guys to take care of Florida. Or seek to the United States a province, the province of Florida, of which she retains nothing but the most nominal possession, but which is, in fact, a derelict. Apparently, you don't have anybody in Florida. You call it your place, but apparently all it is is a place, it's just a bad neighborhood of, uh, of town. It's a derelict, open to the occupancy of every enemy, civilized or savage, of the United States, and serving no other earthly purpose than as a post of annoyance to them. Do you want us to say we're going to immediately punish Jackson? I tell you, you need to immediately do Florida right or give it to us. Make that decision now. I mean, now. So England goes, okay, we're done. Because remember, England was part of this going, hey, yeah, good. England's like, Spain, how could you? Poor <laughs> <laughs> Spain is simply going, oh, I don't know what to do now. <sighs> History. Same year, because history is fun. The USS Ontario lands in Oregon. Because if you remember, Oregon has been has been claimed by Britain and Spain and Russia for a while now, right? Into in that whole area. And Russia's about the only people doing anything. They got like seven fur trappers up there. Nobody else is doing anything else up there. So in 1818, Captain James Biddle sailed the USS Ontario to the mouth of the Columbia River and went ashore. His men dug up some dirt and put an American flag on there and shot off their big guns. There's a bunch of Chinook Indians going, what? <laughs> and so he goes and he greets the Indians, greetings from the great United States of America. They're like, whatever. <laughs> Something like that. And then they moved on. And then when they talked to the factor and the local fur trappers, they said, welcome to the United States of America. <laughs> and, and all the Russians are like, what? He's like, have you a flag? <laughs> uh, no. Thunk. We do. And a warship. And a warship. With big guns. Did you hear our guns firing? Yeah. Because we're celebrating. Because Oregon's ours. <laughs> You have a great day. And then they laughed. And they just go, I didn't what? even leave anybody there. 
No, they left. They left a flag and a big lead plaque saying "Welcome to America." That's it. I mean, that's it. That's all they did. And officially, the Brits, the Russians, the the, the Spanish all went. What? That was it. So did the Russians and all of them, they stayed there? Yeah. Just like well, because, I mean, what would you do if somebody, I mean, if somebody walked into your house and said, oh, this is mine now, and then left? I mean, you might call the police, but it's like, I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> so, so right now, still, the population is mostly Russian. Again, <laughs> all, all seven of them, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they connected, yeah, they, they spoke in language that they understood, they just didn't understand what they were saying. Nope, that's it for the story. Okay, 1818, the very controversial song, Stille Nacht, is, is first performed. Very edgy. Edgy Austrian music. Um, for his Christmas Eve service, Catholic priests, because remember, this is Austria. When we think of Germanic people, we often think of Lutherans, but this isn't Germany. This is Austria, and Austria is still very, very Catholic. They hate Rome, but they're still very, very Catholic. Joseph Moore needed one more hymn to sing for his Christmas Eve service in his little bitty church outside of Salzburg. So what do you do? You need one more hymn, you want something fun, you want something sprightly. He goes to his buddy on December 24th. Not cutting it close, mind you. But he goes to his buddy and he says, I need a song. Tell you what, I wrote this poem like two years ago. Um... Can you just put this to music? Something simple, something easy. So, Gruber puts it together, uh, arranges this simple, quick-moving, plucky little dancey piece uh, for the guitar and for the choir. There's different stories as to why it was for the guitar and choir. Some people say, well, because their their organ was broken. Some people say, well, because it's like three hours before the service. How about I just play it on the guitar? Whatever. For whatever reason, sets it up for the guitar. Everybody was happy. Immediate hit, everybody goes, oh, what a neat little number. Until it becomes a firestorm. Until everything goes south and everybody gets all upset. Because it was such an easy melody that they decided to play it every Christmas Eve. They're like, oh, this is so neat. And they kept using it, which means it became a tradition. And people get weird about traditions, right? Traditions have a way of getting around, which meant that more and more people are hearing it, which means, oh, well, by the way, they did eventually start playing it with, uh, with guitar and organ have a fuller sound. And people got all upset about the use of the secular instrument in the church. They're like, this is so inappropriate. If this is something they use for concerts, secular things. This is not a church instrument. The organ? The organ. Okay. <laughs> so but how did they start playing it if the organ wasn't already in there? It was. They did have an organ. Which is why people say, well, maybe their organ was broken. Maybe, But this is a church that had a newfangled instrument. This is a young priest with his newfangled instrument that, flip it, if you want to understand how this fell. This is a young priest who had brought an electric guitar into his little church building. For whatever reason, the electric guitar was broken, so they ended up using the organ instead. That would make sense to the, more, to the modern church mindset. But from this standpoint, what they did was, they're like, churches, most churches thought that organs were bad. Organs are things you played in the public arena, stuff you play in beer halls. Organs are bad things. If you're really, if you're going to be Klaus Hans and say, let's get back to the way things normally are, organs are bad things. Guitars are appropriate, pianos are appropriate, organs bad because it's a newfangled technology. It requires. Remember all the things that people so would say with. Fine, organs. Some people didn't even like pianos, but pianos are fine. Think about some of the things that people say about. Um, modern technology in the sanctuary. They're like, do you really want an electric guitar and a, and a, an electric keyboard and things that requires amps and stuff? Can't we get back to good primitive stuff that doesn't require all this technology? That's what they were saying about organs. Because they're like, a piano technically you could just wheel in there. A, a, a guitar you could strum. An organ you got to install pipes. You've got to keep it clean. You've got to do all this stuff. It's, it's an intrusion of technology into the sanctuary. Organs are not appropriate. So it became an immediate thing where people were all up in arms about Stillenacht. Because it was famous, and you played it on an organ. Anyway, uh, for his Christmas Eve service, he's got this, and now we're back to what we were talking about with Klaus Harms, trying to update hymns by returning them to their original state. People tended to perceive whatever they grew up with, whether it's personal 
personally familiar in a church setting or whatever as traditional, and we aren't used to really, uh, and we aren't really usually really dedicated to the traditional as much as we are to the familiar, and they're familiar with guitars, not organs. That's making it, that's not so much pro-tradition as anti-change. Remember, we hit all that just a second ago. The problem with this is it gets dangerous when we think that there's a cosmological reason why one way is right, simply because we're familiar with it. I grew up with this, therefore this is what God wanted. The Bible is extremely clear, God hates organs. Fast forward 100 years, the Bible is extremely clear, God loves organs. Right? Or if the Bible only says very few things about organs. <laughs> I'm going to give you a fun for instance. 1822, the Rainer family singers and the Strasser family singers running around singing the Tyrolean folk song, which is what Stillenacht was known by at that particular time, all over Austria, including this really big, important concert in Leipzig uh, in, in uh, 1832. Okay? For that concert, they've been singing this thing for a decade, and they wanted to change it up a little bit, because this is kind of their go-to song. So instead of doing it the way that it was originally written as this kind of plucky, quick, uh, dancey piece, they decided to make it a lullaby. Which totally brought the crowd to tears. They're like, this song that we're all so familiar with, and you made it slow and quiet, and oh, it's so, so beautiful. And so they went, okay, we're totally doing this from now on. We're doing it as a lullaby. By the time that Episcopal priest in New York, uh, John F. Young, translates the song into English in 1859, uh, 25 years later, that's the only version that most people knew was the lullaby version. So... People dancing around the sanctuary, yep. So, so here's the arms test for the song. This coming Christmas Eve, if we were to play Silent Night as a quick plucky dance song, would you hear that as the traditional version? Or would you hear that as changing the traditional version? It, even if I said beforehand, this is the way it was originally written, would you hear it, as, would you hear it, would you feel it as traditional, or would you feel it as changing the tradition? There's nothing new. How great thou art, it's a Swedish song. We have it in the original, in our covenant book, which is different from what everybody's saying. It's because it's, it's translated oh. into German. From German, it was translated into Russian. <laughs> Russian, it came into the. Oh English. my goodness! Wow! But it was Swedish that it was written. Oh, yeah, the original. I didn't. Oh, there's so much. I don't his name. Oh, no. oh, big God. Oh, I. Oh, cool. Oh, I have to look that up. That's lovely. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah, but would one feel more cosmo cosmologically right to you than the other? So would that make you ultimately pro-tradition or anti-change of what you already felt was familiar? <laughs> you just proved Harm's right! You know, it's just, it's just interesting. I want, I, want, I want us to all get up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the variety show. Oh, there you go. We just broke Donna. Right. Okay, I can't get past this song without at least commenting on this. Because um, what happens a century later, we'll hit this again in a century. But 1914, the first year of the war, the Pope has specifically said, can we please have an armistice for for Christmas? And all the government said, no. And so they're, and he's like, can we, even just on Christmas Eve, can we stop shooting just for Christmas Eve? And they said, nope. Um, so the men on both sides are exhausted, they're demoralized, they're in trenches, it's nasty. Uh, but on Christmas Eve, the Germans uh, in Belgium and probably elsewhere start decorating their trenches for the holidays to lift their spirits. And so they started singing Christmas carols, and the British troops started singing Christmas carols back you know, from across no man's land toward one another. But things got really weird once they started singing Stille Nacht, because that's one that the British troops knew as Silent Night. And so they could sing it together. It's like we're singing our German hymns, and you're singing your British hymns, and you go, oh, cool. And then somebody starts singing Stille Nacht, and the British are like, and so the British sing Silent Night at the same time that the Germans sing Stille Nacht. And they're singing things together. And it's really hard to want to shoot somebody that you're singing Christmas carols with. Pretty soon, artillery couldn't shoot anymore. They just couldn't do it. Guys started darting across no man's land with chocolate. 
or with letters from home, or to share cigarettes with one another, or to rip buttons off their, the, their tunics and give them to one another. Anything that they could do to remind one another that it's Christmas, and that though I might be German and you might be British, we're all Christians. In fact, they started playing soccer together, and being goofy together, and taking pictures with one another, doing all sorts of fun things to with one another, because they spent months in trenches in the most horrific war conditions. But it wasn't just one clump of British and, and Germans. They did this for hundreds of miles along the trench line. For a few of them, it lasted for a couple of hours, but several of them lasted for several days. Their commanders couldn't get them to shoot one another anymore. In the end, both high commands had to transfer hundreds of troops away from the trenches because they could not get them to kill each other anymore. It was significant enough that they're like, I can't shoot my new friend that I've been worshiping God together with. Stillenach interrupted a perfectly good bloodshed by reminding people that they serve the same God and he doesn't much care for war. Stillenach, edgy, edgy. But then they had to go back and stop fighting. They did, they did. And sure enough, the war went on for several more years. But it was one of these things where you go, but seriously, stopping and making everybody worship God, letting everybody worship God together, almost killed a war. You go, yeah, and we would do that more. Thing. They didn't, I know. Them. That's the best kind. Right? The best kind of worship is the stuff that just spontaneously. How about, I, how about we sing about how much we love Jesus? Next year, eighteen nineteen, Jefferson Bible is produced. Anybody ever hear of the Jefferson Bible? Yeah. Remember, he's a deist. What are deists? God created the world and then let it be. That's right. God created the world and then had the good taste of ignoring it after that, right? That is the way a good deist will think, is God did stuff, but he doesn't, like a, he doesn't like an unwanted neighbor interfere with you. He just lets you go and do your thing because he's got class. That's the way they tend to look at it. So Jefferson's like, no, I think there's a God, but if there is a God, he doesn't want anything to do with us. So he loved the basic idea of the Bible, very Schleiermacherian. He's like, oh, Jesus was a great guy, a nice teacher. I just don't like the Bible parts. You know, the history parts are great. The Jesus moral teachings are great. So it's great to understand all that. Jesus as a rabbi, all that's wonderful. The moral code, that's great. But all these miracles, all the judgments, all the resurrections, that's just crazy talk. Any good rationalist should ignore all of that, right? Shouldn't you? If you're going to be a good rationalist, you can't read that kind of stuff. And again, you get all those picture harms coming in going, No, this is what I was talking about! Don't do this! So how do you deal with this? How do you enjoy sitting down and reading your Bible without having to wade through all the stuff you don't like? What do you do? Rewrite it. You rewrite it? What's the easy way of doing that? Cut out the old stuff. Cut out the old stuff! That's what he did. He took a razor to it and some paste. And he cut and pasted. He chopped out all the stuff he didn't like. Anything he didn't like, he just hacked out. And let's be honest, that's what most people do. You don't pull out a razor and some paste, but most people ignore the bits they don't really like. The slide out of your consciousness. You don't read those parts. Calvinists tend to squirm at the Arminian parts. Arminians tend to squirm at the Calvinist parts. We don't like those. I love those because it's those buffers on either side of those things. You know, you're an Arminian, you start sliding this way, you bump into those Calvinist parts where it goes, you know, God's totally sovereign. Oh, that's right. Your Calvinists start going over here and you hit those Arminian, Arminian verses going, you realize they're your choices and you're morally you know, bound to them. Oh, that's right. But so you do that with the whole Bible or just the Gospels? Or what started with the Gospels, but eventually did it throughout the whole Bible. Yeah. You also face the right side of that thing. That yeah, that's true. Who's that? Uh, there's the historian. Um, oh, yeah. He just wrote a couple years ago about Thomas Jefferson. But he explains. Anyway, he explained his version of that is that how we do condensed versions of the Bible to give out that we can't give out the whole one. Mm -hmm. That's what he claims that Thomas was doing, that he was just doing condensed. Cool. Like for a mission, uh -huh. a missionary Bible. Well, actually, he did a little bit. He wrote at one point that he did this in part to, to aid with mission to the Indians because it simplified things. Yeah. However, he cut out all the parts that the Indians actually would have been drawn to. And he specifically, this is not just condensed, he specifically cut out stuff that he even wrote saying, this is why I'm cutting it out. Uh, I was going to say, feminists hate this verse, cessationists hate that verse, 
Uh, Warhawks skip the pacifist bits. Others avoid rebel. I had a, a, a my campus pastor specifically said at one point, he's like, I will never preach through Revelation. I just, I avoid that book like the play because it's just too weird and too complicated. Christians do this all the time. He just literally physically did it. So he only left in the parts that he wanted to read, removing specifically those parts. He published his edited Bible originally as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth because that's what he wanted to focus on is the moral code of things. And got rid of all the miracles, got rid of the weird, this is the all those teachings that are so weird and nobody gets them anyway, let's just take those out. If it was too complicated, let's just get rid of it. Was there a book of God left? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not a lot, I bet. Um, anything that mentions the resurrection, anything like that, now we're getting rid of all that. Um, and leaves only... Jesus is clearly deistic moral code. Jesus is clearly a deist if you remove all the non-deist parts, right? As I was talking to Megan about earlier, if you get rid of everything you don't like in a data set... You're left with a data set that proves you right. Right? If I clearly say, this is what I see, this is what I see here, this is what I, this is what I see in the fossil record, this is what I see in history, this is what I see. Like, but you threw out all the anomalies. Yes, which proves that I'm right, because look at the clear evidence. Interestingly, he made a point not just to include the English, but to include parallel columns of Greek, Latin, French, and English, so that people could... Look at it back and forth. He did a lot of study in this. He included maps. He included all sorts of study aids. Because he's bright and he liked to study the Bible. He just only liked to study the parts he already liked. Chopping out the Gospels and everything, mixing them all together in, in a chronological order so they could have a Jesus narrative and do it right because the Bible got it wrong. Which is why most people saw this as a scholarly editing. Somebody who really knows what he's doing finally did this, which makes it a lot better than that dumb old, plain old, King James Bible you have sitting on your on your shelf. That's just the Bible. This is a scholarly take on the Bible by a really scholarly, brilliant guy. Right? Again, you can make the argument this is something of a precursor of 1985's Jesus Seminar, who did the same sort of thing. Let's decide what Jesus actually said and what he didn't actually say. Jefferson only published the book for himself and for his personal use, and for his friends and family for their personal use. It wasn't until his grandson or something released it in 1895 that it got published to the general public. Though in 1904, you can't see it here, but 1904, Congress passed a law requiring the book to be printed by the government printing office and given to every incoming member of Congress. Every incoming member got this Jesus Moral Code. Because it was a law. Yes, they passed a law saying that this is what they're going to do. Up until I think the late 50s. Doesn't sound like separation of church and state. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Really? They took all the church bits out. All that's left is be good to your neighbor, um, uh, don't don't hit people with a rock. You know. It's still Jesus. Yeah, but he's an historical figure, and everybody in 1904 would have agreed with that for the most part. But they took all the, all the religious bits. But that's why it was eventually stopped in, in the late 50s. They're like, well, wait a minute. What's interesting is. Um, in the late 50s, it was that recent. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, what was it? It was uh, somebody, I think when Obama came to office, was it the American Humanist Association that printed this and gave it to him? Uh, and all the members of Congress? Because the American Humanists are like, this is a perfect example of a non-religious Bible. 1819. America acquires Oregon and Florida. Because we've been working on this for a year, right? Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams. It's like, ha, 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 I've already pushed the Spain. Spain's going, I don't know what to do. So he makes a deal. He's like, tell you what, I'll make you a deal, guys. We will take possession of Florida and Oregon since they're contested. And by contested, well, I mean that there's Seminoles all there causing problems. You go, only because you invaded. And, of course, we did. We invaded Florida and we invaded Oregon. That's what makes them contested. He's like, well, since we all contest over them, it's only because you guys are being twerps. Oh, that's all right. Since they're contested, you guys can get part of uh, Texas. And if you look, there's not a whole, we didn't really get rid of a lot of territory there. He's like, but we'll give you parts of Texas, um, and we'll take over any of your current residents' claims against Spain. Anything where, where they say, you still owe us money, because Spain owes a lot of money to people, like, up to $5 million, we'll, we'll cover that. You know, so you're giving Spain $5 million? No, we're telling Spain they don't have to pay the $5 million that we will take, which so we may or may not. 
Yeah, a lot of people make claims against Spain going, well, but wait a minute, Spain owned me money? We'll cover that. We'll, we'll pay that up to $5 million. Whether we actually end up doing it or not is beside the point. But, but we at least... So we were, Spain, we were helping other people get out of debt. I know, it's crazy. But, but I love this. You just go, you're not paying $5 million. You're saying, we're taking away $5 million that otherwise you would have to pay. This is like the greatest land swindle ever. We just got Florida. We just got all the way to the Pacific Ocean. We gave up a little bit of Texas and said, if anybody ever says that Spain owes the money, we'll take care of that. And Spain goes, over a By the way, we'll also take care of the Seminole problem, which is why I had to call that the first Seminole War, right? So with one agreement, the U.S truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, right? We are actually on both coasts. Not only does this give us more land, but it also means now we have trade with the Orient, we have trade with Russia. We have all this stuff. We are literally a world power on both coasts. Big, big deal. Speaking of Russia, <laughs> they're still up there, right? Seven fur trappers, maybe 12, I don't know. <laughs> and we're still disputing over that. Both countries now officially claim this area. Both of them are going, this is ours, well, this is ours, well, this is ours. Russia goes, wait, we've been there for years. America, because we're like, well, we used to be British, and Britain has claimed that for years. Besides, <laughs> we've got warships. <laughs> and you've got like 12 fur trappers there. We kind of get to claim it. So the United States and England in 1818 make a deal saying, we'll both take it. And both, and both American land, and there's more blue, and British land, it's more red. You know, yeah, this is great for both of them. And Russia goes, actually, seriously, their response is a long-winded Russian way of saying, that's not right. That's about all that they can do. Because they're like, we got nobody there. We can't do anything about it. This has been fine, if we, but we can't do anything about it. It's swarming with Americans and Canadians. Then, America makes a deal, finally, with, uh, with England that, that, that basically smooths out the border between Canada and America along the 49th parallel. Does the, do the borders of America start looking more like what you're familiar with? Thank you, John Quincy Adams, who's just running around making America quietly. 1820, Joseph Smith in western New York, remember me talking about western New York? That burned out district? Received a vision. But we're going to go with that next week. Help me out here. What do you see going on in history at this time? How would you summarize this part of, of history? What do you? What stands out to you? A lot of messed up theology. <laughs> there is a lot of messed up theology. There's a tail end of the Great Awakening that started down in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the and the bare beginnings of the Second Great Awakening. We'll talk about that with Charles Finney. Yep. History repeats itself. Every time, every week, it's like a Yeah, it's, it's like, this is stuff we're still kind of doing. And you'll notice, not only is it bad theology, but it's almost invariably the, well, we think you're doing this wrong. It's like, Harms is like, you're doing it wrong. Well, arguably they were. Schleiermarker, you're doing it wrong. Well, arguably Schleiermarker's doing it wrong. Um, that still not comes out, and they're like, oh, let's play this thing for Jesus. And some people go, oh, that's awesome. Other people go, an organ. And nowadays we go, a guitar. Drums. Drums. Drums are evil. It's like, oh, my gosh. But this is what people throw themselves into, is saying, it's not the way I grew up with. Therefore, it must be wrong. Jefferson going, the Bible's doing it wrong. But I can fix that. Hand me some scissors. It's like, how many times... Joseph Smith is just the perfect quintessential example of everybody else is doing it wrong. I can fix this. Just hand me some scissors. Or, in his case, uh, Magic Rock. I was going to say, yeah, there's those stories like the uh, story of the troops or the war that they transcend some of those um, opposing forces. Excellent. So you get Robert Moffat coming into a war zone in South Africa and making a huge difference, and having a protege that makes an even bigger difference throughout Africa. You have Stulenacht transcending that. You have all these different opportunities for people to say, but when you just genuinely try to follow the Lord, 
amazing things happen. When you fight about it, not as much. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity of, of being able to see what's come before and why. Help us to be able to look at our world today and, and realize what things are genuinely, truly, unchangeably important. And help us to take a stand on those things. And I pray, Lord, help us to see clearly what things are things that we're familiar with. Not good, not bad, just familiar. And help us, Lord, to be able to worship you in those things, to be able to honor you in those things, but to be able to see that those things are not themselves sacrosanct. Help us to love you well. In Jesus' name, amen.